Hi, I'm Obindari, the Editor-in-Chief of OrthoEvidence, and I'm here today uh, with Dr. Jason Bussa, who is a Professor and Canada Research Chair at McMaster University. We're going to chat today a little bit about um, what I believe is an important and milestone publication uh, on the issue of opioids. And I wonder, Jason, first of all, welcome, and I wonder if you can give us a little bit of a background as to uh, why this paper you believe uh, is an important one for practitioners. Yeah, so, so thanks for having me on. Um, so there were two issues that we wanted to address with this paper. Uh, the first was, do we have any compelling evidence that there might be uh, sort of systematic differences between individual opioids in terms of their effect on pain uh, or function or gastrointestinal harms? Uh, most reviews, uh, including ones we've done, have combined across opioids, but no one had a explored before, whether there might be important systematic differences. And of course, we know individual patients might respond differently, but do we see differences that are large enough that they would show up across, you know, full trials? Uh, so we explored that. We didn't find uh, strong evidence for any important differences between individual opioids. Now that doesn't, again, it doesn't mean individual patients won't see a different response based on an opioid, uh, rotating to one if a patient isn't doing well on, on another is certainly reasonable, uh, but we, we don't have compelling evidence that you should try this opioid first and this opioid second and this one third. The other thing we wanted to look at was this issue about how people present evidence in network meta-analyses, and I know your group is, has been getting involved in a lot of these as well, and they're very appealing for clinicians and patients and policymakers because they present you with an opportunity to provide the relative effectiveness of competing interventions that you might consider for the same complaint. And the historical way of ranking these has been something called the surface under the curve approach, which gives a percentage that an intervention is the best and a percentage if it is, you know, of that it's second best, third best, and so on. And this has become very influential in terms of people saying, well, now we know the best one, second best, third best. However, this Sucre approach only considers the point estimate of effect. And it doesn't- Which I've always found completely problematic. I just, you know, like I'm not an expert as you are in network meta-analysis, Jason, but I just don't understand how you wouldn't somehow incorporate the precision of the treatment effect rather yeah. than point estimate. Well, exactly. It, it's, it's, it's completely uh, problematic once you start thinking about it and you're only basing it on the point estimate. As you said, it doesn't consider the precision and it doesn't consider the certainty of the evidence. Yeah, right. And, and we know that you can get you know, very large, almost implausible effects from very poorly done small trials. Right. And it's just the complete thing we teach is like, you know, don't trust that. Do not trust that. Be very right. wary of that. Yet, Sucra would rank it one. Yes, exactly. Okay, okay. So, so we, we developed super rankings for all the opioids. And then we also used uh, the great approach, which has now evolved to also provide sort of relative rankings of interventions in network meta-analyses. But it does consider uh, the precision and the certainty of the evidence. So when we looked at the super approach, we found this very wide magnitude, some opioids, enormously superior to others. Other ones looked completely hopeless. Uh, and it really seemed to suggest that there were very important differences. Right. Um, but as I've just 
mentioned at the beginning, when we looked at this great approach that what we call this minimally contextualized approach for ranking interventions, and we only considered opioids that were supported by moderate or high certainty evidence, we saw no difference. They were all a little more effective than placebo for pain and for function. They all caused more gastrointestinal harms than placebo, but amongst those opioids supported by moderate or high certainty evidence, there was no differences between them. So th those were the two sort of important messages of the paper uh, that, that, that we feel will hopefully be uh, helpful both from a methodologic perspective and from a clinical decision-making perspective. So, I mean, let me, let me just uh, ask you this, uh, I mean, not really philosophical, because I imagine you could actually go test this, is now, now that you believe that, let's say, this contextualized approach that you're using with GRADE could, in fact, be an alternative and maybe a more superior approach, it certainly seems so. It certainly seems far more conservative in terms of, you know, the kind of the answers you're likely to get. What does this mean about all the prior network meta-analyses that have had these very you know, I suspect there's some have had quite a bit of impact on various treatments. If you were to go back and apply this approach, I guess the question becomes is how many of those were, you know, overestimating those sorts of uh, true effects. And, you know, you know, quite frankly, if you went back, you'd probably see a lot more, uh, I think things kind of becoming more negative, you know, and I, when I say that, I say, you know, when we looked at the small trials, small trials with big treatment effects, you do a large trial up and you show there's no difference between two treatments. That happens time and time again in surgery. Do you think that is what likely would happen using this approach? Is there a situation in which something that was equivocal on sucre could somehow be completely different uh, with the great approach in terms of showing a big difference where one didn't exist or are you expecting it to be the other way around? I, I would, to, so to, to, your, to your point, I'd expect it to be the other way around. I think okay. there's been a lot of network meta-analyses using the sucre approach that have presented, you know, an intervention is clearly dominant. And I suspect a number of those might be reversed uh, if you were to go back and apply yeah. what we think is a more rigorous approach. Uh, so I, I think it's a, it, it's a serious issue. But the other thing is we have to get this message out to journal editors. So right. even now, even now when we're submitting network meta-analyses for publication, if we don't put in a, a, an approach, a ranking with the Sucre approach, the, the reviewers and editors come back to us and they say, well, this is an incomplete paper. You, you have to put in the Sucre. You know, you, you've only done it this other way. We, we like this relative ranking. And so we've now gotten to the point where we said, listen, we'll do it. We're going to put it in an appendix. We're not going to highlight it. Right. We don't believe that this approach is the most trustworthy one. Um, but, you know, even now that we've done this work and, and, and you know, demonstrated the, the potential fragility of some of these, you know, very impressive results by Sucra, I think there's still going to need more time for journal editors to sort of start considering this. Yeah, it would certainly seem as though this, and I'm I suspect you're already doing this, so I'm just saying stuff, I'm guessing you're already doing, but, you know, if you go back and you do this large systematic review of looking at these two approaches and you show that there are quite significant number of network meta-analyses that have a different conclusion, I think that will drive a lot of change. I mean, you could see, you know, sometimes it is data that drives change. This is a very compelling argument you've made here. And often I find it interesting that, you know, some of the actual clinical questions that are getting asked are also um, 
you know, the basis in many ways for novel methodological interventions. And I know you've done a lot of work on thinking about the methodology. I wonder if I can ask you a final question, Jason, since we have you here, what's next? I mean, you know, you, you've done a lot of work on opioids. What's the future of opioid research or where do you, or has it reached now a steady state? You know, there was this massive, there's a big issue. There's been lots of research done on the concerns. Where are we now with opioid research and where do you think it's going? Yeah, it, it's, it's an important question. Uh, so we have been recently funded to update the uh, 2017 opioid guideline for chronic pain that, that, that we had previously put out. So what are the, some of the things that we're thinking about? Um, we have to understand more around the issue about how dependence might affect patients and, and, and you know, clinicians continued prescribing. So again, we have compelling evidence that the longer patients are on opioids, the more likely they'll become physically dependent after a certain period of time, it's almost inevitable. Uh, and we know that the effectiveness of opioids also tend to attenuate over time. So there's a possibility that some individuals that are maintained on long-term opioid therapy for their, for their chronic pain complaints um, are not on it at a certain period of time so much because it continues to relieve their symptoms, but because if they stop taking it, they go into uh, withdrawal. Right. And so they, they continue to take to mitigate interdose withdrawal symptoms. And one of the symptoms of withdrawal is pain. So it becomes very, very complicated to disentangle that. But I think we have to focus on that. And the other issue is there was this real push to try to get people off their long-term opioid therapy or to reduce the amount of dose they were taking. Because we know that higher doses come with higher risk of, of overdose, for example. And what we've seen, unfortunately, with some of these uh, blunt policies is it has paradoxically increased rates of opioid overdose. Because if you have people on high doses, they become dependent, you pull them off too quickly, or maybe all together, they go into withdrawal. We have a flood of illicit opioids, you know, especially on the yeah. West Coast, but, but fentanyl is yeah. increasingly prevalent. Yeah. You, you can paradoxically cause more harm than good. So we, we have to try to find a balance between these competing agendas and put out information to you know, target appropriate voluntary consensual tapering with the option to sort of stop or pause if they run into problems. Um, and at the same time, better understanding the sort of intermix between potential benefits of opioids and where that benefit might have attenuated and patients are continuing on more as a way to reduce the, the withdrawal symptoms. So I think there's a lot of important work to be done, and it, and it continues to be a very challenging topic. Thank you very much, uh, Jason. And we, again, appreciate the work you're doing and the contributions to um, science and certainly uh, your insights methodologically. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.